This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com. Five minutes of a show like this, and I was like, this, like, Tom was like, that sounds good. I was like, no, this sounds fake. I don't know what to do. Feels horrible. Hi, Derek. Hi, Pat. Sean's uh, not with us today. He's not feeling well, and we wanted to get an episode out for you guys next week, so we're going to record today with uh, with Pat Brisbane, co-worker at ThoughtBot and Haskell enthusiast. Yeah, evangelist. Evangelist. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. We started about like the same time, I think, yeah. right? Yeah. You like started it. maybe a couple weeks or maybe a month after I did or something like that. Sounds right. And uh, I remember when you started... You know, I read everybody's bio when they post it on the page, and I think it said something about Haskell, and I was like, Haskell? Somehow I heard that you were into Haskell, and I was like, what? That's a weird thing to be into, whatever. But you kept talking about it and kept talking about it, and I kept being like, what is it? What is, like, what is so... I remember having a conversation. I was like, what are you talking about? What's so great about Haskell? And you were like, oh, it's a strongly typed functional language. And I was like, well, who cares about types? I came from Java and C Sharp. And you were like, no, 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 no. That's not strongly typed. And I was like, what are you talking about? Everything has a type. So yeah, everything has a type in Ruby too. They're all object. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> but uh, so Haskell definitely a different beast. How did you get into it? Uh, it's kind of a weird origin story. I started. Uh, I was a Linux user, have been for a long time, uh, specifically Arch Linux, and they're all about you know minimal stuff. There's not a lot of flash, and you sort of are expected to do your own system administration. And part of that was using a minimal tiling window manager. Uh, which is just the program that manages your Windows. And the one that I liked the most was Xmonad, which is written in Haskell, and it's configured in Haskell. So basically the way it works is they ship a library for writing a window manager, and then they give you a default implementation. Sounds very Linuxy. Yes, very Linuxy. <laughs> so that default implementation is just a Haskell file that you're supposed to edit to tweak your window manager, to change colors, change sizes, do whatever you want to do. So that was my first introduction into Haskell. Um, and it was actually really great because it was just a Haskell file. So not only could you go, you know, replace the word black with the word white to make it to change your color, but you could also like write a Haskell module to do some crazy thing that you wanted your window manager to do, you know, control your media player or, you know, read an RSS feed and show it on your desktop, like weird stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, so that was really good for like, getting into it slowly and just sort of doing small things here and there to kind of stretch my understanding little bit by little bit. Um, so that was the first thing. Um, and then I found Yasode, which is the web framework, um, very Rails-like, that's written in Haskell. Were you doing development? You mean, it sounds like if you're writing a window manager, you were probably doing development before you found Haskell? or Not at that time. Haskell was my first language after Bash. So the only development I had done before that was shell scripting, which doesn't really count, kind of counts. So Haskell was like your first language then, I guess, after Bash. Well, you said Bash, so. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Um, it made it easier, I think. But, you know, you, you didn't find, so like that, did that get you into it or was this something you knew you wanted to get into? Like, did that get you into programming or like? That definitely got me um, the most excited about programming. Um, at the time, I was working as a functional consultant. Uh, which is, you know, I just know how to use the software and I tell people how to use the software. I don't know anything about how it works or I don't do any development. Uh, okay. But there were people in the office that did that. They were the technical consultants. 
And at the time, I'm getting into Xmonad and doing all this crazy stuff at home just sort of as a hobby. And I'm talking to one of my friends at work who is a technical consultant about it. And I'm like, this language is crazy. Like, it does all this stuff. Like, I was reading Learn You Haskell, and I was telling him about all the cool stuff that you can find in there. And he's like, you know, you're a developer, right? <laughs> like, maybe you should try and do it here. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was my first development job was, you know, I asked my boss if I could try and write some code, you know, one day a week or something. And then that turned into four days a week. And then I was a technical consultant. So how did, how did, what did you write for, like, you weren't writing Haskell, right? Is no. what I'm trying to get at. So yeah, like... yeah. So the software at that job was Microsoft Dynamics AX, okay. which is an ERP software, uh, like SAP. Does um, a lot of three-letter acronyms. Yeah, totally. ERP, ERP's entity, relationship, something? Enterprise Resource Planning. Okay. Uh, right. So it handles the financials and logistics of your business, uh, inventory management, things like that. And it was written in a proprietary language called X++ which looks a lot like C-sharp, but smaller, less features. Um, and you could write literal SQL in the code, which was kind of crazy and kind of cool. It was like one of the actually best ORMs I ever used because you just wrote SQL mm-hmm. and you got back this you know, record-like object that you could manipulate, um, which was pretty cool. But it was object-oriented. It wasn't functional at all. So you didn't get paid to write any Haskell until you came here? <laughs> um, I think I did one little thing. I needed to like transform some data for like an import job, and I wrote the program to do that in Haskell um, without really telling anyone. So that was the first <laughs> time I ever got paid to do it, um, but not really seriously until I got here. No. Okay. Yeah. So like I was saying earlier, when you were here, like you kept talking about Haskell and you wouldn't shop about it. So we, you got Joe on board, right? Joe's- well, yeah. Joe came to me one day and he was like, "How come you didn't tell me you do Haskell?" And I'm like, yeah. Like, I haven't stopped talking about it. What, what are you talking what's about? What's going on? <laughs> so, yeah, I guess he had been getting into it, uh, reading Learn Your Haskell, and he was super excited about it. Um, right. So that's how that's how I ended up at least kicking the tires on it was like you guys did a Learn You a Haskell reading group that you and Joe basically led, I guess. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good introduction to the language. Like the, the book is really kind of fun to read for a programming book. Yeah, it's really entertaining. Um, it's got nice doodles in it. So you, uh, you can read that online for free. We'll put a link in the show notes. It's at learnyouhaskell.com, I think. Um, and you can buy it for your Kindle or whatever the heck you like to read on. But um, you can also just read it online. So we were doing that. And it was one of those things where, like, I kept up with it in the beginning. Yeah. And, like, okay, I was like, this is cool. And they have, like, uh, you know, they go through, like, list comprehensions and guards and uh, pattern matching and things like that. I'm like, this is fairly simple. I've got yeah. this. And then... I don't remember where it was. I think it was probably they went through like the maybe data maybe data type. Am I using that right? Data mm-hmm. type? Okay. They went through like the maybe data type, which we'll probably talk about later. And I was cool with that. And then they jumped into like applicative and I was like, Oh, okay, that's I'm lost now. Yeah. And then once I felt like once once I got lost, I was like, All right, well, I'll keep my eye on this Haskell thing, but I don't know. But every like you keep winning more and more people over and we keep having like you've done Carnival, which is uh the blog comments uh for giant robots blog, robots.thoughtbot.com is a Haskell service. So like there's Haskell popping up and you know, the, the iOS guys now have Swift mm-hmm. and that's, they've been taking a lot of inspiration from Haskell and I know Gordon's a big fan of Haskell and it just keeps coming up. So I've been like looking back into it again. And I know like when Sean and I first talked about Haskell on the show, I said like my biggest problem with it wasn't the functional aspects of it. Like mm-hmm. it was, like I was like, I feel like I can get functional programming. My biggest problem with it is the errors that it gives me for types, I don't understand what right. it's saying. And then also, like, I can't say it. I can't say the language. And it there's, there's like, if you haven't seen Haskell before, if you, like, flip through Learn You a Haskell, 
especially if you like flip towards the back, yeah. <laughs> you'll see some things that look like uh, you you're, you just won't know how to say them out loud, right? To, yeah. Which to me, like, or even in your head, which to me is a is a big deal. But what I also said that I think it might just be that I hadn't spent enough time with it. So then, over the last few weeks, I've been going through like the upcase trails we have with Haskell. Spent more time with it, and now it's definitely that I don't get functional programming. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, after you see the errors and you fix them a couple times, you're like, oh, I've seen this error before. It's just, this is what it's telling me. You kind of figure that out. That's yeah. not a huge you deal. You know what parts to look at. Right, I know what to look at, and I know, like, how to go into GHCI and get the type of a function and, like, kind of play with it in there mm-hmm. and get what I need out of that. And then being able to say it is important, but you learn that really quickly. And, like... Yeah. I remember I've had this conversation, I think, with you and Joe and other people before about how I just find Haskell really hard to say. And, like, if you think back to when you first learned Ruby, like, Ruby definitely leads a little more, like, English. But, like, there's symbols in Ruby. How do you say that, right? Right. How do you, like, if you have a method that ends in a question mark, how do you say that? Like, you just kind of come up with ways to do it. And I think that's what I've been coming up against in Haskell is, like, just, like, okay, I need to figure out how this is said. And you helped me out one time. There's an exercise I was doing in Upcase that was, like, Converting functions you've writ- that were written for you mm-hmm. into point-free style. Right. What's point-free style again? <laughs> so point-free style is where you don't mention the actual argument. Um, like you can define a function, you know, count lower of x is count the number of lower letters in x. That's mentioning the point x. You can make it point-free by just defining the function count lower is equal to counting taking the lower letters. So you just define it in terms of other functions without actually mentioning the argument. Right. So you just construct you just construct functions together. Compose. Compose. Yep. Yeah, sorry. Compose functions together to define the whole entirety of the function. So I was trying to do that, and the way you do that in Haskell is you use these composition operators, which are the dollar sign. And how do you say that one? Well, the dollar sign is the application operator. Okay. And so then dot is the other is one. Is the composition operator. Okay. Um, so when you look at an expression that has dollars and dots... Uh, you read the dollar as of, and you read the dot as after. Right. So you would say, you know, count after taking the lowers. That right. would be count dot take lower or whatever. Right. And that was like, I was. I remember I was up late one night just trying to get this stupid thing converted. And I was like, <laughs> I can't do it. And I came in and I posted that I couldn't do it. And you were like, you said exactly that. Like, say the dot like this and say the dollar like this and see what it, And then two seconds later, I was like, okay, yeah, cool. You know, I'm not, I'm still not regularly doing Haskell, but I know that like, oh, I, I have to say these a certain way and then things start to make sense to me. Mm-hmm. And eventually if I were regularly doing Haskell, I wouldn't think about it anymore. It would just be yeah. something I do. I mean, that after of thing is something that I came up with super recently. Like I've spent my entire <laughs> life writing Haskell and just having these things in my head and not right. knowing how to say them. Right. So. Yeah, that worked out pretty well. So we haven't really, we haven't really talked about like what it is that makes Haskell special, right? So. Yeah. And it's definitely the most different language that I've played with. Yeah. Um, and I came from, like I said earlier, I came from a background where I did Java and C Sharp, and I was like, oh, these types, this pain in the ass. I love mm-hmm. Ruby. It's great. It reads like exactly like I'm thinking, basically, and I don't have to, like, duck typing is great. Love all this stuff. Um, but the advantage of Haskell that gets pitched to us anyway, I think, is a good way to pitch it is, like, what if you never had to deal with null, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's the level of type safety you get in Haskell. You don't get that in Java or C Sharp or something like that. No, no, not really. So that's been, that was actually also, like, basically the the basis for your, the book that you wrote, correct? Mm -hmm. So uh, Pat wrote a book called Maybe Haskell, and uh, that's at maybe-haskell.com. And we actually have a coupon code for it for 50% off. Yep. And that's at, uh, if you go to maybe-haskell.com slash bike shed, 
that'll take you there for that. And we'll put a link in the show notes so you can just click it there too. But it's all about the maybe monad, right? Yep. And it um it's kind of interesting because it it uses that sort of uh, approachable topic. It's not super complicated, and that was one of the the comments that people said a lot when the book first came out is like, how can you write a whole book about this like super simple construct? And that was actually the point was to start with this simple construct that you know someone who's has no Haskell experience can wrap their head around um, and use that to kind of approach and bump into other things like functors and applicatives and monads, which maybe is all of those things. So you can use this sort of simpler idea to talk about those things in a way that's not super over your head right away. Right. And there is like, there's a whole first section of the book and the book is, I mean, it, it is a whole book, but it's not like you can read it in an afternoon if you wanted or yeah. like two two nights or whatever you can yeah. split it up and read the whole thing which was good for me when i was editing it <laughs> i can't read it i couldn't times. imagine like editing a whole book <laughs> that would take forever uh but it was i mean it, it, i read it most of it on the plane across the country and uh, that was you know it was great and the whole first section of the book is basically like it's not it doesn't teach you haskell but it teaches you enough haskell to understand mm-hmm. the rest of the book and i feel like that may be even a better introduction to like just being able to read some Haskell on a page than like going and diving into learn you a Haskell, right? Yeah. Like I felt like the beginning of that is like you skim through that and then you're like, okay, now I can read the rest of this book, which does a good job of like, it's not targeted at Rubyus, but it makes com- it makes comparisons to Ruby. Yeah. Something that we expect more of our audience to have familiarity with, right? Yeah. I leaned on the idea that you, even though you don't know any Haskell, you're probably a programmer. And if that's true, you're probably programming in an object-oriented language. So Ruby's as good a stand-in for generic object-oriented programming as right. anything. Especially most. with the examples that I've given, it just reads like mm-hmm. if you're not a Ruby programmer either, you'll still you're you're going to be totally fine. Yeah. So I definitely recommend that book. But so maybe is something that you can return instead of in these instances where I guess like Active Record find is a good example, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess let's call it let's say like find by name or something like that because yeah. find will raise an exception, right? So find by name, that will either return you nil if it couldn't find it, or it will return you the record, right? right? And that is a violation of type safety because now you've got a function that is returning either nil or a user or right. something like that. So maybe lets you have this, con- or f- I guess it it forces you to have a single return type from the function, right? right. Maybe doesn't force you to do that. Haskell forces you. It changes. You. Your function has to return a consistent type. That's right. just part of the laws of the language. So then maybe is the thing that you say that kind of stands in for like, well, you might get something right. or you might get nothing. I mean, you just said it a second ago. You said active record find by name returns either nil or a user. Right. Well, that quote unquote either nil or user right. is maybe user. Right, exactly. And the fact that you have to deal with that is like, because I don't know how many times I've written Ruby where I was like, you know, user find by something, uh, and then like I continue on, and I look back and I'm like, I should probably handle the case where it's they don't find this user. Right. But that'll never happen. And I just keep yeah. going, right? I'll come back to that. And then like, yeah. you know, well, months it, later, it, something happens. and It turns it into this situation where, like, let's imagine that Ruby did have a way to ask what type a particular variable is. So you've gotten this user from active record find by and you ask what type it is and Ruby's going to tell you it's user class. Mm-hmm. Well, it might not be. It might be nil class. Right. So in Ruby, you've got these user variables that you have no idea whether they're user class or nil class. Whereas in Haskell now, you might have user variables throughout your system. Some of them are going to be user and some of them are going to be maybe user. And now you know exactly whether you can actually treat this thing like a user or if you have to also cover the case that it might be nothing. Okay. So like let's let's say I've rewritten active record in Haskell and now I've got it returning a maybe user, yep. right? 
the thing against nil and guarding against nil that mm-hmm. really sucks is it like it ends up like changing your entire like everywhere you're checking for nil right, right? so is is this any better am i just everywhere checking for maybe like, maybe does go viral okay. once once a function deep inside your system returns maybe you now have to deal with that at every point okay so typically the way that I like to structure an application is that you have this thing that produces a maybe value in, you know, the depths of your system. And then you've got some external boundary where that thing really needs to be there to do what you want to do. Maybe you're rendering it in a view, Mm -hmm. right? You can't render nothing. You have to render something. So you need at that point and at that point only, you would resolve the maybe. You would say, if this user's here, I'm going to, you know, show his username. Otherwise, I'm going to show the empty string. But what about anytime you're all using the way in between, again. you need to carry along the maybe, so to speak, right. which sure, if you did it manually inside of every function did, you know, case, maybe user, if it's just a user, let's get their username and make it uppercase. Otherwise we'll return nothing again. And then mm-hmm. now your caller needs to do the same thing over and over again. Yep. But you don't have to do that manually because the abstractions functor applicative and monad are what let you pretend it's not there okay so that's the important part that i get lost at that i need to go back at sure 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 (laughs) um i mean the the simplest example is functor so functor is an interface that many types can have and what that means is that they have this behavior called fmap and it's it's an interface it's like a protocol or you know a java interface Um, so each type has to say what that function fmap means for itself Mm -hmm. Um, so in maybe's case uh, the implementation of FMAP says, you give me a function that just works on real things. It works on users. It's from user to string, or it's from you know user to int, get the user's age. Just totally no maybe involved. You give me that function, and I'll give you one that can work on maybe values. So I take a maybe, if you've got a function user age that takes a user and gives you their age, and you give it to FMAP, you get back a function that goes from maybe user to maybe age. So if the user's there, it gives you the user's age wrapped up in another maybe. Mm-hmm. If the user's not there, you just get nothing again. Right. So what that means is your whole system is built of pure functions from user to age or user to name, and you don't care about maybe in any of those functions. And then if you've got some source somewhere like find by that returns a maybe user, and you've got some view somewhere that wants to show their age, you just do fmap user age find by, and you're done. Okay. So fmap is the key then basically it allows that's the first sort of simpler one to make those right. cases much more convenient so it kind of allows you if i'm understanding it correctly it kind of allows you to perform operations or call functions mm-hmm. on a maybe value as if it were just a regular value is that it it's separation of concerns is okay. what it is fmap deals with whether it's there or not and your function user age deals with getting a user's age Okay. And those two are implemented completely separately. And then when you put them together, you get something that can operate on maybe users. Okay. That makes sense. (laughs) Okay. And like we've been having like, you know, you spoke a lot of Haskell there and that was my earlier thing is like, I don't know how to speak this, but like that made total sense. Like maybe and just and nothing like those make sense. And then there's the either data type, which is what you think it is, right? It's either this or that. Yep. You know, there's all sorts of things like that. And the book goes in. It goes through that whole thing we just the conversation we just had really which is like now you have this maybe value you do the applicative mm-hmm. talk about monads which mm-hmm. everybody is super excited to talk about all the yeah. time so uh, i don't know what else yeah <laughs> <laughs> do you see yourself ever writing haskell um yeah i mean i did i did the upcase exercises like we talked about and i've talked about on the show before 
I did those. Um, I got to the last one, which mm-hmm. is like the redirect, the replacing thing. redirects, and yeah. I got lost again. And I was like, uh, and I actually want to sit down with either you or Joe or somebody who knows what they're doing and mm-hmm. just walk through it because I want to, I want to get it done, but I'm almost completely lost. So. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like I feel like that one kind of went off a cliff. It's a leap. Like, yeah. Like it was like there was a nice ramp up for like the six or seven exercises before it, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden I was like. What? What's going on here? Um, <laughs> I.O., Mona, what? <laughs> right. So I don't know. I kind of want to sit down and go through that one. And instead, I've been doing the exorcism Haskell exercises, mm-hmm. which are far smaller and simpler. Yeah. And often, in Haskell, especially, oftentimes it's just like, oh, I just call this one function. Yeah. I'm done. Uh, <laughs> but like those at least have been helping me keep it like so I don't have to keep going back and being like, how do I do a type signature again? Like what's going on here? Like yeah, it keeps yeah. the syntax in my head a little bit. So That's good. That helps there. Um, I could see myself definitely doing that in a more involved way. Like you've been doing the Haskell project nights here mm-hmm. where everybody's working on building a pastebin clone or something, right? Yeah, yeah. For a while, it was just like come hang out, work on what you want, talk about Haskell. Mm-hmm. Um, but I keep hearing the same thing from a lot of people that, you know, when they're done with those exercises, they don't know what to do next. They right. want like a real thing to make. Um, so I got this idea of making a pastebin, which is, you know, just a project it's a it's a real thing that can do things right Mm -hmm. you need to you need to know web stuff you might need to know database you know things like that and we could even write a command line client for it Um, so i asked if people would be interested in doing it sort of separately but in lockstep so i outlined a bunch of milestones and each week we would all work on our own versions of the project but try and only go as far as that milestone so we all sort of stay together in terms of complexity and people can help each other out and people can ask me for help um and we're two weeks in, I think, and it's it's going okay. I think it's going pretty well. All right, two weeks. I, maybe I can catch up. Yeah, because <laughs> uh, like I was saying this to Josh today. We were talking about, you know, I was telling him I was kind of keeping an eye on the Haskell stuff and wanted to get more involved in that. And uh, I made the point that like <laughs> I hate feeling like I'm the old guy, but like when I was younger, <laughs> I would constantly like I like if you guys were having a Haskell night, I'd be like, yeah, I'm there. Let's do it. Whatever. Let's have some pizza. We'll get some beer. We'll do some Haskell. Yeah. Whatever. And then, you know, like, that's kind of how I got into Ruby, too. Somebody was like, oh, there's this Ruby thing. I was like, oh, interesting. I'll chase that down, and I'll work on that all night, because why not? Like, <laughs> what else? Like, maybe this will lead to something, and it did. It worked out well. But, like, I can't, like, chase every breaking wave anymore. <laughs> yeah. I have other responsibilities, and I just, and, like, a lot of those time, a lot of those things do end up being, like, well, this didn't lead anywhere, right? Right. So I've been keeping the, keep my eye on the Haskell stuff, and now I'm like, oh, I, sh- I should get involved in that. So I'm definitely, I'm in. I'm not wholly bought in yet, but right. <laughs> I'm in after deal, you know, I guess you should like, anytime you hear me complaining about something being null, you should just be like, we don't have that problem. <laughs> yeah. But did you hear what Chris was saying this morning about the cookie stuff? Yes. He's trying to read a cookie from Rails and it, or he's trying to read data from the cookie, I guess. He's trying to read a signed cookie. Yeah. It was. And so it could, you either get back what you want or right. you get nil, but that nil could happen for like three different scenarios. And he's like, I realize I need a sum type. Right. Like, I want a type system where the result can actually tell me why something's not there, not just right. that it's not there. Right. I'm like, I'm gonna get you. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's basically like in that scenario, and that's like I think that's a good scenario of like an everyday thing that we'll probably hit up against. Like he was getting a signed cookie out of the session, and or trying to read the value. And what did he do? Oh, the key was wrong on the server, mm-hmm. so it couldn't. It couldn't authenticate, authenticate that verify value. the signature right couldn't, couldn't verify, verify the signature. signature and so it returned nil in that case 
but how do we know that that nil just means like that there was nothing there? Like the right. cookie, like there's no difference between the cookie being set and us not being able to authenticate it, and the cookie not being set, and maybe some other reason. I don't know. But so like that's a perfect example of well, you need a type returned that mm -hmm. can tell you these things that can right. carry with it information. And, and you, I mean, you know, you the, could do that in you, Ruby, right? Like, you could you wrap could, it up in right, a struct. It could return an object, and yeah. like you check something, interrogate and, it, yeah. right? Um, but you don't have to. You don't have to do the whole interrogation step if you have this. If you have these nice type systems that have like applicative and all the stuff you told us about before, right? You do it only at the spot where you really care about it, right? And you know, it seems like a better approach. Um, what else? Type systems and. I mean, if you want to just talk about Haskell in general, we didn't talk about laziness and purity, which is hugely one of the selling points of yeah, the I language. Was, I was actually just reading. There's uh, Pat Shaughnessy had posted a. Uh, a link to this series of articles that goes into it's like three articles we'll link it up in the show notes um it goes into how lazy evaluation works in haskell and so i was kind of working my oh, way cool. through that this morning um so what are the like i still don't quite understand what the advantages of it being lazy are right the advantages of laziness is that you can separate uh producers from consumers when you architect your software so explain more of that. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, in Ruby, it's very inefficient to do some array dot map foo dot map bar dot map, whatever that doesn't work because it makes all those intermediate arrays. Mm -hmm. um, so what you have to do before Ruby had laziness in its lazy enumeral class is you would have to basically fuse that. You'd have to take your three chained maps and make them one map that does the operation once mm -hmm. so that you now have your hands tied in terms of separation of concerns and, and what objects you need to make because you need to do three things in one spot. You have no choice. Right. Whereas when a language is lazy or when anything is lazy, even late Ruby's lazy enumerator, you can separate out the individual steps and make them in one nice, you know, singly concerned object mm -hmm. um, and keep them all segregated, uh, which right. is just great. Right. And I guess one of the other tenets of Haskell is that you have immutability, right? Because like, when you were going through that map example, I was like, well, one way you get away from creating all these uh, intermediate right. arrays is by using map bang, right? Or yeah, you just yeah. mutate along the way. Right, is map you can't bang do a that. thing? That is, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, I don't use it, as you can tell, <laughs> <laughs> for good reason. So in Haskell, once you assign a variable, or once you assign, you don't assign a variable because it's not variable. Right. right, the equals does not mean assignment, it right. means equivalence. Right, so once you say that something is equivalent, you cannot change it. Is there any edge case there that I'm speaking wrong about? Or like, I that's mean, true, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 that, that's true. I mean, when, when you say, you know, x equals 5, you can't then after that say x equals 6 because you've just said that it was 5. When you say x equals 5, you're telling the compiler and the, and the system that anywhere you see x, you can, you can put in 5 and you'll get the same answer. And anywhere that you see 5, you can put in x and you'll get the same answer. Um, that's referential integrity, right? Um, and that is enforced everywhere, which is uh, makes it super easy to reason about your code, right? And like I've been moving that way in my Ruby code as well, not in not in an enforced manner, but I just like if I write objects, I just like I won't freeze them down. Like it's really hard to do in Ruby, really. Right. Like I won't freeze things, but I I don't expose an interface that allows things to be tweaked internally. Like you just have to get a new object, that kind mm -hmm, of thing. Mm -hmm. I've been moving that way in Ruby and found it nice because then you're just dealing with a bunch of basically value objects yep. that only change for a very clear reason right. for a message you patch to it right yeah and it's super good for concurrency you know haskell is very it's very easy to do concurrent stuff in haskell 
because when a piece of code has a reference to some other value, they know that nothing else can change that value. So they can do whatever they want in their own thread and other code can do what it wants in its own thread and nobody steps on each other um, because your value might be out of date because the way you the way you conceptually change values in Haskell is to build a new value from the old one right. with the differences in it. So some other thread might have done that, making your value slightly out of date. But you're not going to have like a race condition. You're not going to get you know locking or anything like that. And I remember reading through Learn You a Haskell, like one of the whole. Um, I, f- I can't remember. Is this like basically if you call a function with the same inputs, you're going to get the same output, right? Is what, yep. it, what's the name? Is there a name for that? That's that's purity. Okay. That's, that's pure. So functions. pure functional programming, yeah. and then like they talk about random number generators, right? Yeah. A random number generator, you want <laughs> you want a different piece right. of output every time you call it. So I'm trying to remember exactly how they got around that. It's something like you you create a generator, right? And mm-hmm. then how how does that work exactly? I don't remember so, how this how is random number generation still pure? Right. So in a language like Ruby, that's not pure. You know, the rand function has a random number generator inside of it. And when you ask for a new random value, it gives you that random value, and then it updates the random number generator. It mutates the random number generator, so the next time you call rand, you get a different number. Mm -hmm. In Haskell, it's the same way it deals with anything like that. It just returns the new random number generator with the random number. So if you need three random numbers, you start with a random number generator. It gives you the first random number and a new generator. That will give a different number when you ask it for the next random number. And then you do that again. So okay. now you get three different numbers. That makes sense. Yep. <laughs> so it's another one of those things where they're returning you a value and some context. Exactly. And you can wrap that up in the state monad so that you don't even have to deal with it. <laughs> okay. Interesting. You're selling me. Um, <laughs> so my initial reaction was like when you were like, I'm into Haskell and I was like, oh, Haskell, <laughs> whatever. Is like, isn't this like an academic thing? Right. That's a common misconception. Right. So... Why is that a misconception? Because well, I mean, it's it far like more that. popular in academia, yeah. in academia than it is anywhere else. But that's, we'll... that's where it started. That's where it was used the most for the longest time. The people that created the language was a, a committee of academics who were looking to create, you know, there was a lot of popular functional languages that were Haskell-like at the time. And they all got together to create, you know, sort of one kind of canonical functional language to explore these ideas of purity and laziness specifically. Um, and so, yeah, that's where it started, and that's where it was used forever. Um, and they had no desire to make it a real-world language, um, which has been awesome because they were able to do all of these things like monadic I.O. Like, you would never come up with this idea of, of monad-based I.O. if you cared about making a real-world language because it took a long time <laughs> um, to get that right. But now that we have that, all of a sudden, we have this language that is lazy and pure, but you can still read and write files and create web servers. So all of that stuff kind of came later, um, but it did eventually come. These days, we do have hundreds and hundreds of libraries, thousands of libraries probably, for doing useful things. Uh, We have web frameworks. We have all kinds of stuff, you know, that you need to do generic programming. But the academic background of it made it so that, like, when there wasn't a good solution for how to do something in a pure way, the answer wasn't, well, we've got to ship this. (laughs) Let's just do this. It was... We just can't do that yet. Or right. like, there's no good way to do this yet. And we're going to we'll figure wait. it out. <laughs> we're going to wait until <laughs> Philip Wadler writes a paper, and then we're going to implement it that way. So Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, so we're trying to now like take projects on in Haskell if right. we can, right? Absolutely. Trying to find the right fit for the right client. Yep. What are the challenges that we're having there? Like, because I haven't been keeping up with how that's going. Like, have we had any pushback on that or like? I don't think we've had pushback. I mean, we, so we're, we're being careful. 
like obviously this is new for us and we want to we want to be really sure that we're going to be successful before we go ahead and, and decide to do a client project mm-hmm. um, so i think it's about finding the right client more than the right project haskell's a general purpose programming language you can do anything that you need to do in it mm-hmm. um, but we're looking for clients that they don't care what we build it in because they just they're not technically inclined or whatever um, or that they are actually excited about something like this you know maybe they've got developers on their end that are interested in haskell and things like that so that that latter one is what we're looking for first and we have you know two prospects that are in process right now that cool. we're thinking about um, but the main problem is that we're really real, we're really well known as Ruby on Rails developers. So we do get a lot of clients that come to us because of that and right. are looking for that. So right. well, hopefully we'll just be really well known as developers. And then yeah, <laughs> we can build whatever is appropriate. Um, to me, when I think about that, one of the one of the things I think is going to be the trickiest part is we hand these projects over at the end, right? right? So if you don't care what we build it in, that's fine. But if you're going to need to maintain it, you need to find somebody who can maintain it. Yeah. So is it harder? Is it going to be harder for them? I mean, it seems like it would be harder for them to find somebody who can come in and write Haskell than it is for somebody who can come in and just and write like to find a Rubyist, basically. I don't have any concrete experience to say one way or the other. Um, I have my own opinions and I've heard anecdotes from people that it's actually easier to find Haskell developers. Anybody um, who knows Haskell is jumping at a chance to get exactly, paid to do it. Exactly. Yeah. So there's that. And then, you know, on the other side of things, companies hire people every day that don't know the language that they work in. Mm-hmm. And I think it's wrong to think that Haskell's special in that way, such right. that someone who doesn't know Haskell couldn't come in and pick it up. I it, don't think that's true. But it is a little like it's not like going from Ruby to Python, right? No. Correct. Or Java to Ruby or like like these are still object oriented. You're, you're shifting paradigms to functional programming and then you're also taking on the type safety yep. and things like that. So, yeah, it is more different. Right. But I don't think it's that much more different. So I think that if you as a company either hire us and we train people that you then go hire, or if you have people that know Haskell and you then hire more people and then they train them, I think that you'd be successful. I wouldn't be super concerned about it. Cool. Learn you a Haskell and this may, and maybe Haskell, like yeah, <laughs> good starts, right? Like what I else? think what? I think so. That was the goal behind maybe Haskell was to write something for programmers who are interested in Haskell but don't know it. Right. Um, so you know, see some cool stuff, get hooked on it, hopefully, and then go read a larger book. I think maybe Haskell will do a good job of like wetting your appetite for it, mm-hmm. and then like learn you a Haskell is more of a like. They start you off with some cool stuff, but that you are going to get pretty yeah, deep into it. It's definitely it's, more it's, comprehensive. You know, it's going to take you some time to get through, and you got to work through some of the stuff they give you, that kind of thing. Whereas maybe Haskell, you can sit down, read, and then you can go through it again later if you want, and like actually play with things in the console. Or mm-hmm. so, how do people like play with Haskell? Like, what do you do? You just brew install GHC. G- GHC. Yep, that's okay. the compiler, GHC, and then it comes with an interpreter, GHCI. Mm-hmm. Um, if that's all you want to do is get in there and type expressions and see how they work out, then then that's it. Uh, if you're trying to install libraries and you want to play with like the networking package or play with Yisode, if you want to play with Yisode, you should go to Yisode's website and follow the quick start guide. Okay. Um, but if you just want to play with packages, then you would want to install Cabal, which is the package manager. Uh, and then you can install libraries and see how they work. How is that ecosystem? Like I know when we first deployed things, it wasn't going particularly well. well the deployment was difficult. <laughs> right. Uh, the ecosystem's great. Okay. There's, there's, like I said, thousands of libraries to do anything that you need but i was specifically like the tooling like oh, how is the yeah. package manager how is the like how is deployment how is uh, i don't know anything else you have to deal with but... yeah cabal is notorious for not being good 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Cabal. Sorry, Cabal. <laughs> um, and I mean, the problem is there is this huge pool of libraries on Hackage, which is the you know Haskell package repository, and they are able to exist at any number of versions. You know, every library on Hackage could have tens, hundreds of versions that have been released, and your package has its own version bounds. And the, you know, dependency resolution is not an easy problem, depending, you know, no matter what NPM says, it's not <laughs> solved. Uh, and we got an NPM digging in this episode. <laughs> Good. All right. We're, I think we're 10 for 10. And, <laughs> and so, you know, a lot of times Cabal has trouble. And that's probably the number one most off-putting thing for new Haskell users is they run into that and kind of throw up their hands um, and run away. Uh, but there have been improvements. Um, sandboxes are good. It's like Bundler for Cabal. It lets you have a, an isolated project directory so that your projects don't conflict with each other in their dependencies, um, which was a huge win. Uh, you can do freezing now, which is like gemfile.lock. So you can be sure that, you know, if it works on my machine, you can then install the same exact packages and it works on your machine, hopefully. Uh, deployment. Uh, we had some trouble deploying to Heroku. Right. I mean, that's going to be harder, right? I mean, yeah. the, the environment is limited there. Yeah, it was mostly the build timeout just because, you know, Haskell's compiled and dependencies are very isolated. So there's a lot of them. So, you know, a large project is going to have to compile a lot of dependencies. And we just kept hitting the build limit. Um, but recently, we found a tool called Halcyon uh, by a developer, Miatek Bach. And he has written this thing sort of as a proof of concept for fixes that could be made directly in Cabal to make it better for these use cases to try and reduce having to compile things a lot of times. So, like, ideally, yeah. you shouldn't have to compile the same dependency a bunch of times. You wrote an article about this on the blog, right? I did. Yeah. Yes. So we'll link to that in the show notes. It's pretty good. Um, it's pretty good. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> but, it, like, it explains, like, how you can basically, like, you cache the results of your build on S3, basically, exactly. right? And then another developer can just come along and get those rather yep. than having to compile themselves. Exactly. It turns out to be way faster. Yeah. As long as you're on the same platform, you know, two people on the same platform shouldn't have to compile the same project. The, the, there were some caveats to that, right? Is like it builds into slash app. Mm -hmm. So you can only have one project that you're working on at the time, at a time, right? Before you blow it away and have to redownload or how's that? Yeah. So the sandboxes, which I mentioned earlier, are your sort of isolated package database. So your projects don't conflict with each other. And the way that it works is it builds these sandboxes and then it caches that on S3. Okay. So instead of building your own sandbox, you just grab the one from S3. Now, the problem is that sandboxes hard code the path that they were built in within right. themselves. So if you built it in home slash Derek slash projects and I built it in home slash Patrick slash projects, we couldn't share it. Right. So by default, it puts it in slash app slash sandbox. Right. Um, and it's like you can work on multiple projects at a time, but you have to rebuild slash app slash sandbox when switching. Just rebuild the sand, which just redownload the just, sandbox. It might not even redownload because it'll cache it okay. locally. So it might just be, be extracting a tar okay. file, you know, so it's not slow to switch projects. Okay. I think I remember reading that thinking that was a little weird, but it actually seems reasonable. I mean, yeah. the ultimate solution would have it be not to encode full paths. And right? there's an open issue to get that fixed. But, you know, development is, is slower than I would like on Cabal. All right. Uh, well, get involved. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. Um what else haven't we talked about that's interesting in Haskell? I feel like I do feel like we're gonna have to have you back on when Sean is feeling better because he has more experience with Haskell and just more experience with. I know he's a big fan of um, Scala. Scala. Yeah, he's a Scala which, guy. Uh, so maybe you guys can argue about that. Back that's what forth. I was expecting. Yeah. yeah, I know it's it's too bad he's not feeling well, but we will have you back on. This was kind of like an introduction. Yeah, <laughs> and we'll have uh, Sean, the bike shed resident uh, language geek. 
debate you next time. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, like we mentioned earlier, the book you can find at maybe-haskell.com slash bike shed. That'll get you 50% off. I think it'll be like $14.99 or something like that. Something like that, yeah. Uh, worth every penny. <laughs> Thank you. Should we wrap up? Sure. Okay. You want to you do the... Uh, I do don't. You, do you know how we do this thing? No, I don't. You can. You want to do it or you want me to do the whole thing? <laughs> I, well, tell me what to say. You can say, do you want to do the show notes part or do you want to ask for reviews? Um, I'll do the show notes part. Okay. Bike, bike show notes for this episode, bikeshed.fm slash 10. Bikeshed.fm slash 10. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 10. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are greatly appreciated. And then you say, we'll see you next time on the Bike Shed. <laughs> <laughs> We'll see you next time on the bike shed. All right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a wrap. <laughs>